Hi, I'm Jodie Day, and I'm here to talk about the disenfranchised grief of childlessness during World Childless Week. Welcome to the Silent Why. I'm Claire. And I'm very hot. <laughs> it is very hot in here. England. Bonkers temperatures. <laughs> and who are you? Oh, sorry. <laughs> I'm Chris. Brilliant. And in this episode, we've reached lost number 46 of 101, looking at disenfranchised grief and childlessness. It is World Childless Week, after all. If you're new to us, this is a podcast on a mission to find 101 different types of loss, to chat to those who've been through them and find out if it's possible to find hope in all kinds of grief. We're also asking all our guests the same last question. What's your Herman? If you have no idea why, check out the link in our show notes for a full explanation. Today's guest is Jodie Day from Rural Island. I'm actually a big fan of grief. Not that it's in any way a fun thing to experience when one's in the acute stages of it but it is profoundly misunderstood and profoundly creative emotion. I think we need to be so much more grateful and appreciative and understanding and supportive, both of grief, of people who are grieving, and of supporting ourselves when we're in the acute stages of it. She's become a well-known name in circles around women and involuntary childlessness. She wrote the book Living the Life Unexpected, started Gateway Women. She's a psychotherapist, TEDx speaker, and has been referred to as the Beyonce of childlessness. Plus so much more, which you can find out through the links in the show notes or just by Googling her name. Now, one type of grief that Jodie's keen to educate people about is disenfranchised grief. It's a term first defined by Professor Kenneth Doker in the late 80s. The form of grief which is not socially acceptable. So you're not allowed to talk about it, you're not allowed to experience it, and you're not allowed to seek support for it. It's probably like unrequited love, a very painful love that is not allowed to be expressed, not allowed to be in relationships. It's like unrequited grief. So this form of grief might not be acknowledged in society, which could leave some with a feeling they might not have the right to grieve. For example, childlessness. In this chat, Jodie shares with us about never having her own children, her time being single, not knowing who her dad is, having an abortion and the healing moment that helped her face that loss, and how her relationship with grief has changed over the years. My childlessness broke me open, perhaps even more so than my divorce. It brought me to my knees. I didn't know it was grief I was experiencing, but I think once I was able to understand that I was grieving and lean into it, there were so many ungrieved losses backed up in my system that came out then that just really floored me totally. We think you'll gain some invaluable insight through this conversation, particularly if you're dealing with long-term grief or just curious about what that might look like. We'll end this episode with Jodie reading an extract from her book, but we begin with her introducing herself. So, hi, my name's Jodie. I'm um, the founder of Gateway Women. I'm the author of Living the Life Unexpected. I'm a psychotherapist and I'm also a proud World Childless Week ambassador. I live in rural Ireland um, after a lifetime in London and it's really great to be on the show. So I know you and I know your name. It pops up a lot in uh, childless circles because you're, you're well known for your advocacy of talking out for, for women in this area especially. But it's not the only loss you've encountered in your life. So just give us a synopsis of um, like your life and what loss and grief has looked like you know, over the however many years. That's a juicy question. I suppose I start with my childhood. Um, I, I, my parents split up before I was born. So um, my mum was uh, kind of encouraged slash forced to marry someone when I was three uh, in order to uh, create a respectable home for me. So I grew up in a, in a pretty unhappy home. 
and um, and obviously without uh, without ever meeting my father. I still haven't met my father or seen a photograph of him, and that's my half Irish side. And I'm, you know, so here I am back in my indigenous roots, but still without my my father. And I mean, kind of some of the, I mean, for example, I've lost all of my possessions three times in my life, you know, <laughs> so that's that's quite a lot. I then um, I got married um, when I was 26 to the guy I've been going out with since I was about 22. Um, and when that relationship didn't work out as a combination of uh, my unexplained infertility and his um, mental health issues, which were kind of manifesting, unfortunately, in addictions, um, you know, when that marriage broke down, that was the most enormous loss for me because I lost the person that I hoped to have children with. I lost the person that I really thought I was going to spend the rest of my life with after 16 years. And I lost him to addiction. He did, he did keep his life, but it didn't look like it, it, you know, for a long time, it didn't look like he would. Um, It took him 10 years to get clean after we, after we split up. And I think for anyone who has loved someone um, with substance abuse issues or other addiction issues, it is the most enormous daily loss of so many things. And I also come from a background where there was a lot of that. So I don't know, sometimes I feel, uh, you know, I, I really don't deserve to be in many ways the kind of as, as you know, sort of jaunty and well-adjusted as I am these days. But I credit that for uh, 15 years of therapy, training to be a psychotherapist, which is just, you know, there are no skeletons left in any cupboards anywhere. They've all been brought out. And also I have to credit the 12-step movement. So as a lot of people have heard of AA, but they haven't heard of a lot of its um, other 12-step groups. And I think uh, for me, Al-Anon, which is the 12-step group for friends and families of addicts and alcoholics, absolutely was a huge part of me, you know, of of the healing in my life, life and helping me to integrate the many losses in my life that were due to being surrounded by, as growing up, alcoholics and addicts, and then marrying one. So then I had childlessness and singleness. So yeah. I've, uh, it's been, it's been, there's been a lot to, there's been a lot to deal with and a lot of losses along the way. You mentioned with a smile on your face, losing your possessions three times. So you've clearly experienced all sorts of loss and grieved those in different ways. It's a short question, but it's probably going to be a massive answer, but have you recognized a different, you know, you, you grieve differently to different things or is it sort of one size fits all? I just grieve all, you know, different things to grieve, but in the same way. Does that make sense? You know, I don't think I did grieve them. I mean, because I had, you know, quite a traumatic sort of background, I was so used to having the rug pulled out from underneath my feet that in a way I was quite desensitized to loss. Um, and I just, I, I, I was a, quite a different character to who I am now. I was quite tough. I think, you know, and my childlessness broke me open, perhaps even more so than my divorce. It brought me to my knees and I didn't know it was grief I was experiencing. But I think once I was able to understand that I was grieving and lean into it, there were so many ungrieved losses backed up in my system that came out then that just really floored me totally. So... I now have a much more fluid relationship with grief and I know how to work with it when it arises. And it will be even, for example, recently, about five years ago, I moved from London where I've been living, you know, I was born there, 
brought up in the countryside, moved back to London when I was 19. So I've been there for 34 years as an adult when I left to move to rural Ireland, which was something I really wanted to do and was really excited about doing. But it brought up a lot of loss. Because as, as I sort of say in my work, even desired change comes with a side order of loss because grief is the emotion that enables us to process change because all change is also lost. It means something is no longer there that was there because something new is there. Now that something new can be something we've actually created or something that life has just handed us. But I realized, oh, this I'm feeling some grief around the life I had, the identity I had, you know, Jodie the Londoner, all of that. And it was interesting for me because now I feel the body signature of grief. Often before I know it's grief, I'll notice that I'm sort of shrugging a lot. Maybe I'm doing some sort of longer sighs. Maybe my feet are slightly heavier, you know, kind of stroppy adolescent sort of trudging movements. And I'll go, oh, what's going on? And then I'll check in with myself. It's like, what am I grieving? And kind of hello grief. I've noticed you've entered the room. What are we doing here? And then I'll kind of like take a mental inventory and go, oh, okay, that's gone. That's never coming back. Ah, I'd say that now I have a relationship with my grief and we are partners in life. It actually becomes part of your experience of what it is to be you. So I think even that early day when I said one day I will be okay again, one day I will be on the other side of this, I kind of wouldn't really say that now. Because actually, I think now I'd say, one day this isn't going to be so painful. And one day this is going to be integrated into my reality of what it is to be Jody, And it will no longer be dominating my identity, but it will be integrated into my identity. You know, grief is a form of love. It is created by love. And the love I have for my children hasn't gone anywhere. It's just no longer painful. You know, it lives in a kind of a precious place deep inside my heart. And my heart and my identity has grown bigger around it to encompass it. But it, you know, if I didn't have a little bit left of my grief, then I wouldn't have anything left of that love. And I'm okay that there is deep in my heart, there is a jewel where they are safe. And if it gets touched, it hurts. It's a bittersweet hurt, but it's no longer this overwhelming despair and sadness that is at the front and center of my mind, you know, 24 seven, um, you know, and it's not that it shrunk. I think I've grown, you know, the idea that grief is a companion for life might sound quite scary, but that's because we live in a very grief phobic culture that paints grief as some kind of problem. Maybe even a character weakness, maybe even something to be pathologized. Maybe it's even an illness, but it's just a form of love and it's there to help us deal with an irrevocable loss or an irrevocable change. Um, and you know, it's such a profound and beautiful emotion. It has completely transformed my life and my identity. And I'm, I know it sounds like a very strange, I'm actually a big fan of grief. Not that it's but in any way a fun thing to experience when one's in the acute stages of it but it is a profoundly misunderstood and profoundly creative emotion to, to actually change us into a new version of ourselves that is able to live in the world with the thing that we didn't think we could live without. I mean, that is extraordinary. You know, I think we need to be so much more 
grateful and appreciative and understanding and supportive both of grief of people who are grieving and you know of us and of supporting ourselves when we're in the acute stages of it it's really interesting it got me thinking as well about learning about your grief and recognizing him when he appears and and what he looks like and you've obviously had a long time working on that relationship you said that childlessness was sort of what kind of cracked you open with it is there a point when you discovered that it was a grief how did that happen because you were quite instrumental in the early days obviously of recognizing childlessness as a grief so is there like a one point when you suddenly twigged that or did you just sort of learn it as you were going along No, there was very much a point. Um, I was in my second year of my training to become a psychotherapist and we were doing a weekend training course on working around bereavement and we were introduced to the grief model, the very classic Kubler-Ross grief model. And we were studying it over the weekend and it was the first day and it was like the Saturday. And I went home that year, this feels very familiar. You know, what we were discussing, it just, just had a tone about it that just felt really familiar. And so I went home and I mapped out the, the, the Kubler-Ross you know, five-stage model against what I was experiencing around my childlessness. And it was a completely perfect fit. And I was like, oh my God, I'm grieving. That's what this is. That's what this despair, this, this deep melancholy that doesn't shift with anything that I know what to do. I mean, that was what was so confusing about it is, you know, I'd seen the doctors, I'd seen the therapists, I'd seen everyone about it. And I and I had a lot of tools in my toolbox for dealing with difficult things because I'd had a lot of experience and nothing that used to work worked. And I was having real difficulty feeling any joy. So even the things that used to bring me joy in my life weren't bringing me joy anymore. So it was like kind of all of the ways I would normally help myself through a difficult time weren't working. And I thought, well, maybe this is just what being middle-aged feels like. You know, maybe I'm just going to be this kind of new, slightly miserable, grumpy, joyless person for the rest of my life. Hurrah. And, but it wasn't, it was grief. So I had, the moment I realized this is grief, I realized two things. And I feel quite emotional talking about it because it was such an important moment for me because I thought, number one, I'm not going mad because the internal cognitive reality of grief is a very strange place. It's very different from our normal cognitive reality. And it can be very, very kind of scary to kind of like, what am I, what's going on with me? I I don't recognize these thoughts and this, why am I thinking these kinds of things and feeling these kinds of things? So I thought, great, I'm not going crazy. Number two, I understood for the first time ever, if this is grief, grief is a process. That means one day I'm going to be on the other side of this. And it was the very first moment I had hope that one day I was going to feel differently to how I felt in that time. So it gave me some hope and it gave me some reassurance that this is a natural process and I'm going to be okay. I don't know how, I don't know when, but I am going to be okay again one day. I think it's almost like we need to shift our expectations that rather than assuming you might get through life avoiding grief, which seems to be what for some reason we have all have built into us. I don't know where that's come from. We almost need to shift it that you're going to have grief. You're going to have to build a grief into your life, but you don't know yet what it's going to be. And we'll all have a very different one or ones, you know, there'll be lots of them, but this is going to be your thing and you will build it in. It will be, it will become your identity. It will be with you for the rest of your days in very different ways. I think that would almost be like a sort of like, oh, you know, 
what am I going to get? How am I going to have to change when it comes? We don't know. But we do seem to have this belief that it just, it won't happen. Or we might get away with it. And if we don't get away with it, something bad's happened to us and we're the unlucky ones. I do wonder how, how recent that is and how incredibly privileged that is. I mean, I, I, you know, over the last 50 years, you know, certainly some of us have not experienced, you know, any wars and we've lived at a time of kind of prosperity and free healthcare and so many things, which are all passing. <laughs> and I think, you know, to my grandparents um, who lived through the Second World War and, you know, when there was no National Health Service, death was much more present in people's life. And certainly, I think death being around you much more and dead bodies being around you much more often really would change your relationship with grief. In a way, perhaps our phobia of grief is also, and the way sometimes we see grief and loss as some kind of character failure is because we have collectively been able to imagine that every human problem can be solved. That if we have enough money, enough data, enough medicine, if we're good people, if we work hard enough, if we pay our taxes, you know, that somehow we can kind of control the human experience. And loss, you know, unchosen loss and fertility, aging and death can't be completely controlled. And we don't like that. You know, our ego really likes the idea that we have got the universe nailed and grief and loss they show us that we haven't. So we really don't like them. It was making me think of colours. And I guess nine out of 10 people, if you ask what's the colour of grief, they'd say black. And it's almost like we need to try and change the colour of grief. Because if you want to live with it as a love, as a companion, maybe you, maybe others don't want to be around black all the time. But if it was a different colour, like a yellow or a green, then it suddenly becomes a lot more acceptable to be your friend, to accept yourself, whatever it may be. But I think that sort of leads me into thinking about when you grieve over a long period of time, when you accept a situation over a long period of time, that then taps into something that you're talking a lot about at the moment, which is disenfranchised grief. So can that be something that you feel in a short spell or is that predominantly when you're grieving over a long period of time? Gosh that's such a good question. As I understand it and I talk about it in my work grief is a social emotion it is a form of love you can't grieve on your own you or rather you can grieve but you can't mourn on your own and it can get stuck because what happens is grief has to be reflected in the heart and mind of another who gets it. And that can be online or it can be face to face, but it's just that sense that it has to move into a social connection. So if you imagine that grief needs that other in order to do its mourning work, to be recognized, to be validated, to heal our hearts, to help us change our identity, and you're not allowed to talk about it. And if you do talk about it, you're shamed or told, oh, you're not really grieving. You haven't really lost anything or aren't you over that yet? Or, oh, I thought you guys were okay with that now. Or whatever it is, it's just like, just get back in your box. So, I mean, I don't know if there are any studies on this, but I would imagine that disenfranchised people could get stuck for a long period and not in, not in the kind of the healthy relational way that I'm talking about, that I'm in relationship with my grief. I think it could be very stuck grief, very painful grief you know, deep despair, sense of not belonging to the world, not belonging to the community, your story not being welcome, you know, an intense sense of being othered for your experience would, you know, there are many forms of disenfranchised grief that are recognized now from Kenneth Doker's work. And actually one of them is, is secondary infertility. I mean, someone who has had a child 
and would like to have more and can't have them, if they try to talk about it, they will hear things like, oh, but you've already got one or something like that. So it's, it's once again, it's that sense of like, oh, you're not allowed to talk about that. I have decided that you're okay. So please be quiet. Uh, another one is sibling loss. You know, when people lose a sibling, often when someone's talked to them, they'll ask them how their parents are doing. But actually, the fact that they are mourning the loss of their siblings can often be overlooked, you know, and mourning the death of an ex-partner. For example, I have been divorced for over 20 years. Um, I'm still close to, you know, my ex-partner. That's where all my nephews and nieces are because I'm an only child. So I'm very much still part of that family. And when, you know, when he dies, I know I'm going to be devastated. And yet people would say, but you split up years ago because... Um, mourning the death of an ex is also disenfranchised grief. So why are you upset? You divorced 20 years ago. And it's like, because we were together for 16 years, you know. He witnessed my 20s and my 30s. He was my witness, you know. I'm not just losing that. I'm losing a part of me with him when he goes. So there are many ways it can show up. And the fact that it can't be spoken about is, is, is excruciating. I mean, this this sort of thing we could talk about for hours and, and days. As we mentioned at the very start, we're in the midst of, well, Childless Week, which is very much about raising awareness. So with the time you've spent in it so far, have you come to a point where you think there's, there is sort of a, an answer to help somebody with it, as in it can be worked on, or is it just about recognising it and uh, spending time, again, raising awareness of it like, well, Childless Week? I think it's probably both. Um, I think individuals, if you're listening to this and you are experiencing um, distress around your childlessness, that distress is likely to be grief. And you may not have labeled it as grief and no one might have suggested it's grief. And probably the best thing that you can do is to find others who are experiencing it as well, who can you can have frank discussions with online. Gateway Women has an online community and there are other online communities out there. You'll find a list of them on the World Childless Week website. I mean, I remember the very first blog I wrote because Gateway Women started as a blog. And, you know, I thought maybe two people would read it. And, you know, suddenly there's all of these comments coming in. And I was sitting there with tears running down my face because women were writing, I thought I was the only one with these thoughts in my head. How do you know exactly what I'm thinking? And just this, oh my God, I'm not alone. So that sense, you know, find your people find your community. If you can find one in person, they're harder, but you know, you, you know, there are, there are, I mean, the Gateway Women Online Community, which is now called the Childless Collective, has kind of groups that meet up all over the world. So you can meet other members. That is really helpful. Find your people. And if you are someone who is perhaps around someone who is experiencing involuntary childlessness, I would, I would, you know, if they start to talk about their experience and if they name it as grief and if they name it as distress, my number one tip is this, whatever the first thought is that comes to your mind that you want to say, take a breath. Just take a breath at that point, because it's likely that that statement will be what we call a bingo, because they are really, really programmed into the, the collective unconscious like, uh, and it might be something like, oh, kids aren't all they're cracked up to be, or, oh, you dodged a bullet, or have you thought of adoption? Or, you know, and if you watch my TED talk, I kind of go through quite a few of them. And these are very shaming statements, because what they're saying is, I'm not really listening. I just want to fix it. 
because you having this problem is not comfortable for me. And it's very shaming. So I would just say, you know, it's a very human impulse. There's nothing wrong with it to want to offer a solution. The solutions that get offered to people without children are either ones that are completely out of their reach, have already been exhausted, or are totally fantastical. Um, so the chances are just 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 don't say that and, and ask an open-ended question instead. That If they're opening up to you, be that person that they can talk to without judgment. Just go, gosh, I, I didn't know that. How, what's that like for you? You know, it doesn't have to be rocket science. You don't have to be a therapist. Just don't shut them down with a bingo. I think that does apply, though, to uh, often we can think that about ourselves as well. It's not necessarily what others might say. We might say it internally. You know, I certainly thought... Uh, when we had sort of come to our line in the sand where, okay, we progress as a two. Uh, and then suddenly I was thinking of, ah, oh, you know, all this extra resource, extra money, holidays, all this, you know, you sort of start thinking, well, all, all I can fill my life with if there aren't children, but, you know, much of that hasn't come to pass. So I'm having to accept, okay, I had lots of maybe unhealthy thoughts about what life would look like for me, which hasn't worked out. So I need to continue to to work through that. And that wasn't what, necessarily what people were saying to me. That was just my, my own thoughts. Part of you wants to think, oh, yeah, you're right. Yeah, I could do more of that stuff. But then sometimes you can't. And it made it made me realise, especially when people thought our house was really quiet, they'd always comment on how quiet your house is, especially if they've got kids and they just like love it because it's quiet. It took me a while to recognise there's a difference between a quiet house and then like having peace because our house is quiet. It didn't mean it was always peaceful because there was a lot of grief, there was a lot of loss, there was a lot of stuff we were working through. The quietness highlighted what we didn't have. So there was a lot of things like that I had to work through and kind of reconcile, thinking, yeah, I should be grateful for that. But then actually thinking, well, actually, no, because that is the thing that makes it so empty here. There's a lot of things like that. But um, just with the childless thing, obviously, it's World Childless Week. You know a lot about that. So what, you know, if people are just like, I don't understand, what do these weeks actually do apart from the fact I see stuff on social media, maybe? What is the value of a week like World Childless Week? Well, World Childless Week was started by a British woman, Stephanie Joy Phillips, in 2017, when she realised that there, there wasn't, you know, I mean, child-free person of the year has been going on for nearly 50 years, but there wasn't anything to do with, with involuntary childlessness. All of the kind of weeks that we got tagged onto were basically fertility weeks, and, um, you know, childless people, not all of us are childless because of failed fertility treatments. And also we're kind of the bad fairy at the christening. Nobody really wants to think about childlessness when they're going through fertility treatments. So it's like we weren't really welcome there anyway, either. So um, Stephanie, you know, she'd been running a couple of Facebook groups around, you know, supporting people who were in voluntary childlessness. And it was just a kind of brainwave. And she floated it with a few people and they said, yeah, yeah, do it. And that first year it went absolutely ballistic. I mean, so many people got involved and were sharing the resources. And and so I think after that one, we really thought about well, what, what, what are we going to do with this in the future? And I've been an ambassador and supporting the project right from the beginning because I had quite a big audience by then and my audience has grown since. So, you know, you know, by putting my weight behind it, that really helped as well. But I think the purpose of World Childless Week is number one, awareness, like Chris was saying, um, getting the World Childless Week onto the awareness days calendars of kind of organizations. That's really important as well. So starting to see that this is a week in the year when we think about these issues, you know, we, we have, you know, the corporations and DEIB and HR has a long list now of things to think about. But childless people historically have not been part of that, that, that list of kind of well, these people have a different experience in the workplace. Should we be thinking about that? So that's really important. But also, just like you two and just like me, pretty much every, well, 
all of the support in the world around childlessness is created by small organizations, one people, two people, three people doing it out of love. So there, there is no, um, there's no big organization. There's no money. No one's ever funded gateway women. No, no entrepreneur with deep pockets or philanthropist has ever rocked up at my door and said, here, here's a hundred thousand pounds. What kind of campaign could you do with it? So it's mostly small, you know, self-funded organizations doing amazing work. And one of the things World Childless Week also does is by bringing us all together and signposting what is out there in a concentrated way on the World Childless Week website for that for that one week. It really helps people find the support they need. And, you know, 15 years ago when I started, there was nothing. You know, uh, uh, now there's so much, which is amazing. And I think the more there is, the better, because we're each going to sort of have a slightly different vibe that's going to appeal to a different. So in a way, the more the more resources started by people for childlessness there are, the better, because then someone might find the one that really vibes best for them. Um, I mean, just if I'd become a mother, it wouldn't mean that necessarily I'd, I would automatically get on with every other mother or they'd get on with me. So why should you know every childless person find my personality and my approach really, really works for them. So it's great. So it brings together lots of people. It provides a whole week of free webinars. I think we've got 18 webinars this week um, on a wide variety of topics. So they're all free. So it's like there's a week of support for individuals. Something that World Childless Week does that no other Awareness Week does is each day has a different theme and the content for each day's theme is provided by childless people from around the world. So actually, it's also a place where people can express their experience. It's not a creative competition. It can, you know, it's it, some of them can be very raw um, or very polished. So it's also like a platform for us to express ourselves in different ways over the week. So it comes at it in in so many different ways, the classic kind of awareness raising day, but it's also a community building day and a resource sharing day um, for a whole week. I mean, I'm. I'm so proud to be an ambassador of it, and I'm so proud for what Steph's done. Once again, completely unfunded. <laughs> uh, just um, with all your experience, have you any headline thoughts on where men are with this? Because I know predominantly it's childlessness is talked about among women, female circles. Some men are there, some men are catching up, some men are hiding. Mm. What are your sort of headline thoughts on men and infertility or childlessness? Well, over the years, I mean, I was often said, could you please start gateway women? And can you start gateway men? And I said, I, I really don't think it's my place to do that. And I remember once I had run, I'd run a workshop and um, unusually everyone in, uh, in the workshop that weekend was partnered. And they said, we'd so love it if you did something, you know, for our partners. And they were all partnered with men. And I said, no, nah, probably wouldn't work. I said, just go home, talk to your partners see what they say. If they really want to do something, I'd be really happy to create something to bring in a male, you know, co-facilitator for the weekend and, and to create something. Anyway, the ones that came, most of them came back with like, no way. And the ones that did come back, like there's probably the most positive response was, if you really want me to, darling. That says it all. So, <laughs> so I said, that's actually a no. <laughs> um, and so over the years after that, whenever I would meet a childless man who was developing a public profile of any kind, I said to him, please, can you start something? Please, can you start a support group, please? And they're known in the, in the trade, they're kind of known as Jody's famous nudges. 
Um, and I said, you know, I'd be happy. I'll, I'll mentor you. I'll support you. I'll help to kind of get the platform up. You know, I really want there to be something out there for men, but it needs to come from men. And I'm very pleased to say that after many years of nudging, um, both uh, Michael Hughes and Andy Harrod, they set up the Childless Men's Community on Facebook. Um, it was called Clan of Brothers for a while, and then they rechanged it to the Childless Men's Community on Facebook. Michael Hughes, I know him through, he was a World Childless Week ambassador. He also went on to be one third of the Full Stop podcast. Um, and they have a community now. The Full Stop podcast has an online community, which is for men, women, and people of all sort of gender expressions. So that alongside my dear pal, Dr. Robin Hadley's work, um, uh, he's written a great book, you know, How Is a Man Meant to Be a Man? I'd say that slowly and very much kind of coming out of the UK again, uh, men are finding a voice. Um, Robert Nerdon is an author, journalist who's just written a book, I Always Wanted to Be a Dad, um, which I read some I was very honored to read some early drafts of that's just been published and that's going to be um, that, that is actually out to buy Robert Nerdon. And that's about being childless by circumstance, because all, there are, as is, as with the female story, the um, childless after infertility treatments was kind of where childlessness came in and childlessness by circumstance, which was something I started talking about, um, is still a bit more hidden. And in the male story, childlessness by circumstance is much more hidden. And Robert Nerdon's book is all about that. You know, he's in his 70s now. He always thought one of his relationships would lead to children. They didn't. And he's grieving that. And he's in his 70s. And childlessness by circumstance is more nebulous and so much more complex sometimes than... Because people can get their head around the idea of like, uh, you know, if, you're ch if you don't have children or you didn't want them or you couldn't have them, yet they can kind of get that. But everything in between, just like, oh, no, that, that's way too great. I can't go there. Um, and actually, very few of us, very few of us have a completely straightforward story. You know, my story involves not wanting to have children, you know, when I was young um, because of my childhood, changing my mind and trying to have children and not being able to have them. And then divorcing and hoping to meet someone else to try IVF with and not meeting the right person. So childless by circumstance and being single. So it's like I've kind of experienced quite a few different varieties of it already, um, including having an abortion when I was 20, uh, when I got pregnant, when I was sure I didn't want to have children because I was terrified of mothering as I had been mothered, um, absolutely terrified. So, um, you know, that was something I had to grieve later. I never knew that would be my only ever conception. Um, I still don't know why I couldn't conceive. It wasn't anything to do with the abortion. I had an operation. Everything was checked out. But it wasn't until I was grieving my childlessness that the grief of the abortion emerged. Um, and I write about it in my book, but I had an amazing experience with that when I was in St. Paul's Cathedral with a group of gateway women who were attending um, a service for loss run by saying goodbye for Babies lost at any age and any stage. And I was there supporting women who'd, who'd, who'd lost children through, um, through miscarriage, through IVF failure, through early infant loss. And when I was there, they asked everyone who had experienced that loss to come up and light a candle. And it's in St. Paul's Cathedral. And I suddenly realized I wanted to light the candle as well, even though I felt I kind of didn't quite deserve it because I hadn't 
you know, hadn't had IVF fail, you know, losses. And, and I just thought, no, I, I want to light the candle. And as I went up there and I lit the candle, I realized that the baby I was, I was lighting that candle for was the child that I aborted. And in that moment, I knew that he had been a boy and I would have called him Paul, which would have been his father's brother's name. And I was in St. Paul's Cathedral. And as that smoke from the candle went up to the ceiling, I was very much in contact with the soul of that little boy. And I said, I'm so sorry, I wasn't ready to be your mummy. And I felt his forgiveness. And it was a very healing moment for me. And I do try to talk about my abortion because it's often a shamed loss within childlessness. You know, one in three women in the UK has had an abortion at some point in their life. Many of those were already mothers or go on to be mothers. Many of us, you know, were not mothers and do not go on to be mothers. But it's there's a kind of thing that, oh, you had a chance to be a mum and you didn't take it. So you're not allowed to grieve. Um, and we can, Chris, we say that to ourselves and it can really get in the way of processing childlessness and also being able to be really honest with other childless women because we fear their censure. Thank you for sharing that because I know there'll be people listening who will really feel that and that will just give them a lot of hope. I know what you mean, not on the same level of you know loss, but we didn't choose to pursue IVF. It almost feels wrong because some people in some countries don't get it you know we had two shots on the nhs at one point people would be like why would you not take that and it wasn't it wasn't right for us at the time and looking mm. back we're, we're pleased we didn't follow that path because it would have inter interacted with a lot of other health stuff i had we didn't know at the time but it is difficult there's different all these decisions yeah. you make along the way they put you in these little categories that make you feel like you don't fully belong in the childless category as a whole and it's um it's incredibly hard to to work through there were elements as well that are resonating with me because uh, something we've talked about before uh, when you grieve something you never had in the first place where there isn't a physical something to to mourn over you know there isn't a, a small grave site there isn't something physical to bury so the what you were saying about the you know circumstance being childless by circumstance quite often i imagine in that regard you're not left with anything physical to put put away to bury to mourn over so it, it adds into that confusion which is why ritual is so important because you know one when sort of archaeologists you know look at uh, a human remains and look at old cultures once you find evidence of ritual, and that's usually ritual around burying bodies, you know that you found modern humans. It is, you know, along with making art, you know, ritual is so much a part of what it means to be a modern human. And by modern, I mean, um, you know, beyond Neanderthal, although even now we're starting to realize that perhaps the Neanderthals were more modern in inverted commas for radio than we have previously understood. But it's ritual makes tangible the intangible and it creates an object that a tangible object a place a visit an object something a moment a shared experience to share and talk about and remember i mean one of the rituals i created um and it is it is in my book for those who want to do it which is so powerful is actually to write a goodbye letter to the children that live only in your heart uh, and to write it and to, and to use the word goodbye in the letter, to use the names that you would have given your children if you have done so, and to sign it off 
you know, as mummy or daddy or whatever the term was, and, and have that letter and then burn that letter. And if you do that, I mean, when I do it with a group of women, we read the letter out, you know, and then that person burns it in the center and we stand in a circle around it and we watch it burn. And then the next person reads their letter. Yeah. You don't get to keep the letter because after you've written it, a lot of people really want to keep the letter. It's like, no, part of it is you have to burn the letter, but then you get to keep some ashes. So you take the ashes away with you. And then, you know, I get women sometimes like 10 years later writing to me saying, I finally worked out what I want to do with my ashes. Because one of the things I say, don't rush it. Don't think you have to do something. You might want to keep them forever. You might want to bury them in your garden, but they'll say, actually, you know, I went to this really special place um, and I released them into the air or I've buried them in my garden. I mean, one lady, actually more than one person has told me that the plant that they planted on top of the ashes has like a rose in it. And the rose blooms every year, like on a significant anniversary for their loss. So it's, it's extraordinary what happens or people keep them forever, you know, in a special pot or, and it's, it's, it, it creates something tangible. And also the place where we used to do the ritual, which was when I ran workshops in London, um, in, is actually in Regent's Park. Some of the women go back to Regent's Park to that spot because that's where, in a way, the funeral and memorial for their loss took place. So there's something tangible. So it's, you know, sometimes there's, you know, grief work, as I call it. And, it you know, sometimes it can be thinking of creative ways to create a ritual around our loss and also taking our loss seriously, seriously enough to do that. And because it's also quite scary to do because we're really coming into relationship with our loss in a very profound way when we do something like that. It's going to bring up a lot of emotion. It's, it's in effect, it's in effect, you're having a funeral for your dreams. You know, that is not going to be like a walk in the park, but it is a before and after. And women say, you know, after that ritual, something shifted in my life and that I wasn't expecting to shift because that is the power of ritual. You know, I'm, I don't know. I think maybe in a past life, I might've been a kind of priestess or something, but I love ritual. I love creating them. I love holding them. I love the depth of emotion that they create and that has to be held. One of the things we ask all our guests out of interest, really, if you've ever asked the question why, and more specifically, maybe for you, now you, you've had such a long relationship with your grief, do you still ask it if you did ask it? Yeah. God, I spent years in that place. I think that you know, part of the anger stage, you know, looking at Kubler-Ross is kind of working through and the bargaining stage. It's like, you know, if I'd done it differently, you know, but I think that sense of unfairness, you know, why me? Why did this happen to me? I'm a good person. You know, all these people in the world are horrible to their children that shouldn't have been parents anyway, all of that stuff. It's really normal part of the grieving process. But one day I turned it on its head. Why not me? why not me? Had to happen to someone. And it was the beginning of me because one of the things that happens within grief is quite often what's called a loss of the assumptive worldview, which in simplistic terms is how you think the world works. And for me, you know, my childlessness on top of all of the things I'd experienced, it was just, you know, really universe. Is there a sign on my back that just says, kick me? Because, you know, I just like, is there anything left that can go wrong in my life? <laughs> and I gradually began to realize that I was carrying within me 
a very simplistic worldview that I really should have left behind in the primary school playground, which is that good things happen to good people, that the world is fair, that life is nice, that if I'm a good person, nice things will happen to me. You know, that this idea that there was some kind of bargaining system between me and the universe, and I would get rewarded. I realized that how incredibly simplistic that was and also how privileged that was because um, there are, you know, the dice are stacked against people in so many different ways when we're born. And, you know, for things that absolutely we haven't chosen, I mean, we can be the non-dominant ethnicity, we can have some kind of disability. There are many, you know, there are many, many things where people will judge us and put us in the out group. Whatever the in group is, they'll put us in the out group because of some privilege that we do not hold that is nothing to do with our choices. And I began to realize that nature itself is fundamentally unfair. You know, if you're an antelope and you're the one that gets picked for dinner by the lion, that's not fair, but that is nature. And we are, you know, an act of nature, a storm, a hurricane, definitely not fair, definitely not, you know, why did it have to land in our town? So I think because we have separated ourselves from nature, human culture sees nature as something out there to go and visit, has lost that actually we are part of nature. And nature is not fair. And nature is amoral, you know, amoral. It, it, it really doesn't have an agenda. It's, it's just random who, who these things happen to. And I think once I stopped thinking that I had been personally singled out by the universe um, and started to realize all the privileges I had, as well as the things that hadn't gone well in my life, I think I started to have a much more balanced idea and that maybe, I don't think without my childlessness, I would have arrived at that point of view. I I think childlessness, because it did crack me open, it also forced me to go very deep, to find a new way of understanding my place in the world. And I'll be honest, a more humble one um, that didn't expect life to work out well for me just because I was Jodie. Like, why, why would it, you know? (laughs) it's um you know life you know life is challenging for all of us and some of us it's really stacked against us right from the beginning I had my own challenges but I also have lots of privileges you know white middle class sounding even though I had a working class upbringing a good education which was free um you know and most mostly able-bodied I do have a few things going wrong um even quite a nice speaking voice There's lots and lots of things. And I have to say, you know, this is one that we're not allowed to talk about as women. Lookism. I was a good looking woman. You know, I'm now a much older woman. It's different. But this idea that, you know, I I was born, well, not as a kid. I was a weird looking kid. But when I became a teenager and a young woman, I had a certain kind of look and a certain kind of figure that was sort of the way that good looking women were meant to look at that time. Complete genetic fluke had nothing to do with me. Luckily, my mum, she was very, very critical. So actually, I, I, I had no idea that, you know, that, <laughs> that I, was, I was actually quite nice looking until, until men started paying attention in my teenage years. But that opened doors for me as well. I didn't do anything to deserve that. And someone who, you know, has looks which don't look like that, they get less opportunities. And yet it's really interesting. Lookism, we're not allowed to talk about it. I'm not really allowed to say that I was a good-looking young woman. Yeah. It's like, oh, you can't actually say that. So, well, it was a reality, and it was nothing to do with me. 
gateway women, for example, probably wouldn't have taken off in the way it did if I hadn't looked the way I'd looked in midlife. Because when women looked at my website and looked at my photos, I looked normal. I looked like someone they wouldn't mind being. But had I looked a different way, they might have thought, oh, she looks a bit weird. Or I don't want to look, I, I don't want to be associated with childless women that look like that, whatever that is. It's a, it's a minefield out there of things we're allowed to talk about and we're not allowed to talk about. And as you know, that is where you'll find me. <laughs> <laughs> Leaving a map for the rest of us. Thank yeah. you. Jodie, <laughs> uh, it's been such a pleasure, such a joy to, to chat, to hear some of your experience. So the last question we want to end our chat with, love to hear how you <laughs> summarise everything you've learnt and gathered from the last few decades into one short answer of pearl of wisdom to hand on to somebody else but yeah what what's your Herman my Herman's around grief grief is the engine of change and transformation it's something we need to learn about and become skilled with it will visit all of us it's not to be afraid of grief is the engine of creativity and transformation that's my Herman If ever there was a conversation advocating for the positives that grief can offer, I think it's this one. Thank you so much, Jodie, for sharing so openly and honestly about your experiences. We really appreciate it and know that so many others will benefit from it. To find out more about Jodie, her books, her talks, her teaching, we've put links to her work in our show notes. And if you want to know more about World Childless Week and all the resources and seminars on offer, visit worldchildlessweek.net. And then there's Claire and I. Read more about us and our story at thesilentwhy.com or on social media at thesilentwhypod. And we'll be back with a brand new episode in two weeks. We're finishing with an extract from Jodie's book, Living the Life Unexpected, read by the author herself from chapter four, entitled Grief is Good. In Western culture, we've become fairly hopeless at coping with grief, with loss. We fail to recognise its power, its meaning and its healing and run from it as if it were death itself. Yet grief is the emotional and psychological process that enables us to deal with loss. Avoiding it makes us emotionally stuck, unable to cope with life, unable to move forwards. Becoming aware of the possibility that we may not have children, that we may not have the family of our dreams is a heartbreaking loss. Unlike many of the other losses we may have experienced, the end of fertility or the possibility of bearing a biological child is an irrevocable and definite loss. It's a kind of psychological death and it's profound. Facing up to it changes us forever. What we and others often fail to realise is the depth and reach of our loss. That not only will we never have children, but we will never create our own family. We'll never get a chance to heal the wounds of our own childhood by doing things differently with our children. We'll never watch them grow up, never hold their hot little hands in our own, never throw children's birthdays parties, never take that first day at school photo, never teach them to ride a bike. We'll never see them graduate, never see them possibly get married and have their own children. We'll never be grandmothers and never give the gift of grandchildren to our parents. We'll never be the mother of our partner's children and hold that precious place in their heart. We'll never stand shoulder to shoulder with our siblings and watch our children play together. We'll never be part of the community of mothers, never be considered a real woman in a society that equates motherhood with womanhood. 
We'll never be able to hope that someone will be there to support us with the practical and emotional challenges of growing old, let alone someone to leave our treasured belongings to, visit our graves, or take our lifetime's learnings into the next generation. If you take the time to think about it all in one go, which is more than most of us are ever likely to do because of the breathtaking amount of pain involved, it's a testament to our strength that we're still standing at all. And yet, because the loss of our future children is an invisible loss, we often fail to recognize ourselves that what we are experiencing is grief, and others don't seem to have a clue what depth of pain and distress we are in. Some women are in such pain that they find themselves having suicidal fantasies. I did. It's not that I wanted to die. I just didn't want to live the rest of my life with this level of hurt. If we miscarry, lose a baby or infant, fail to conceive, or never have the opportunity to try for one, our loss can remain invisible to others. It's known as disenfranchised grief because it's grief that our society does not recognize and which consequently many of us feel shame for experiencing if we allow ourselves to experience it at all. And because our loss isn't recognized and reflected back to us with kindness and empathy, we often give up seeking understanding from others and may instead learn to block out our pain with all kinds of self-medication, including drinking too much, overeating, overworking, or becoming a sort of recluse. In doing so, we may remain stuck in a quagmire of unprocessed grief for years. If we had lost a living family by some tragic event, we would never expect ourselves to get over it. Yet we and others expect those of us who are childless to pick ourselves up, dust ourselves off, count our blessings and get on with things. No wonder so many of us are struggling. The treatment we currently receive is not just neglectful, it's downright cruel. And sadly, knowing no better, many of us treat ourselves in exactly the same way. I've come to understand grief as a form of love because it's created by love and it's a loving energy that heals us so that we can love life again. I like to imagine the moon with its bright face towards us reflecting the sun as love and the dark side of the moon in shadow representing grief. We need to go through the whole cycle in order for the sun to come out in our lives again. There is no other way round. We either stay in the dark or go through the dark and back out into the light again. Grief heals us, but we cannot do it alone. We cannot wait it out. Time does not heal. Grieving heals but it cannot heal until it is witnessed and held jointly with great tenderness in the heart and soul of another, just like love. Just as one of the most painful romantic experiences is unrequited love, I think that disenfranchised grief is a form of unrequited grief, a grief that is not allowed to be expressed, not allowed to be in relationship. But grief cannot move into its active state, grieving without a relationship, because grief is a dialogue, not a monologue. And until we find a place to have that dialogue, either face to face, online, or with a skilled therapist, it stays wedged in our hearts like a splinter, and it festers as it waits, infecting our life and soul with sadness. It is vital that as childless women, we give ourselves permission to grieve our losses, and in doing so, allow the grieving process to heal our hearts. Without grieving, we're stuck fast, and without empathetic company, with whom to do our grief work, we can stay stuck for a very long time indeed. It's not as gloomy as it sounds, because there's more to grief than sadness, and there's often laughter mixed in with the tears, 
and those tears are healing ones. After all, not every culture is as nervous about grief as we are. In the Mayan tradition, grief is considered the highest form of praise and crying as a form of prayer. Thank mm-hmm. you.